So thank everyone for, for thank you guys for coming today and choosing to allow me to like bore you for an hour on what is a really complicated subject, which is pain pathophysiology. But you know, as I've suggested already, my goal for doing this session though is to do something in, in a very simple manner because it's important that we understand pain pathophys because it really is the fundamental building block for everything that we do here with respect to the field of pain if you think about it. So one of the things that was the fundamental tenet of everything we do here at Pain Week, which actually started out as the very first meeting we ever had for Pain Week, was actually called the Pain Educators Forum, which is what this is a session of. And the whole purpose for that was we wanted to look at a way of not only teaching content to people, but teaching, excuse me, everybody who was there a way of being able to teach that content to others. And that's extremely important. So we looked at this topic from a very interesting standpoint, but I wanted to do it in a way that makes it easy to be able to explain to, let's say, someone who's not medically trained, like your patients. Now think about this for a second, because this has become even more important. I heard in a session yesterday, which is something I hear from my wife all the time, who's a critical care nurse working in an ER, the hospital sometimes seems more interested in the survey that the patient gets about what they thought about their treatment, like were they seen fast enough, than the actual care that they were given. And they don't care, you know, they got a little cut on their finger and they don't care that there's a severe trauma in the next room that's requiring everybody's time and attention because that's life-threatening because this is life-threatening to them. And that's absurd. Think about this, our patients see television commercials so they might see a television commercial for a medication that says, ooh, if you have fibromyalgia or a post-hepatic neuralgia, if you take this medication, you're going to be happy, smiling, and living a normal life just like all the other people in this commercial. But we know, because we've seen the clinical trial for that medication that says, you know, only a third of the patients get a 30% improvement in their pain scales after six months, which go from a six to a four. And that's only 10% better than placebo, which was 23% get the same third improvement. So when we write that medication for that patient, our endpoint is a 30% improvement in their pain score, correct? But the patient's endpoint is what? 100%. So the patient's expectations are here. Your expectation is here. The patient might very well have gotten that expectation or gotten that treatment, you know, that result but because they were expecting more when they come in to see you for that follow-up visit, they tell you it's not working. And you could completely overshoot the fact that you did something that was. And now, reimbursements might be tied to that patient having an understanding whether or not it worked. So I think we're gonna be forced to be in a, in a position to actually explain this information to patients so that we're on an equal playing ground. And I'd be lying if I did not say that I've had dozens, if not hundreds of patients in 25 years that I've done nothing for except to explain the process of what was going on with them. And it's like, oh, that's it? And then all of a sudden their expectations change and their outcomes are better and I did nothing. So my goal for this pain pathophys essentially is to give it in a way, give us a way that we can explain this more important than anything else to our patients, which again, might be very important to you when it comes to reimbursement for such things like MARCA, which are gonna be basing this stuff on patient satisfaction. So if my slide thing would work here, there we go. I have nothing formally to disclose for this session. Our goals are simple, our learning objectives at least. We want to be able to differentiate between nociceptive and neuropathic pain, and I know that sounds basic, but I often see this confused in medical records. 
We want to be able to describe the process of pain transmission because you need to do that, especially if you're going to be able to take any kind of credentialing or certifying board. There will be a question in this form or another about this topic. And lastly, we use pharmacologic therapy to treat our patients, our pain patients, and we know what these medications are indicated for, but it's kind of nice to know what parts of the pathway they might play a role in. So we'll see what we can do to finish this in time and get to all that so I don't have to leave anything out. We start our voyage this morning by talking about the idea or the classification of good pain versus bad pain. Does anybody here think pain is good? Getting a lot of people that say yes, and it is. Pain is good. If I touch something that's hot, I want to know that that surface is hot so that I can act to pull my finger away fast enough so I can prevent the potential first degree burn from becoming a potential third degree burn. Right? If I'm about to have a potential fatal cardiac event, bring on that chest pain so that it warns me early enough so that I can do something hopefully to intervene and prevent mortality. That's a good pain. Now on the other hand, a bad pain is an example of pain that, you know what, it might have started out as good, like, yeah, I know, I burnt my finger six months ago, but it's still hurting. But it doesn't have a purpose anymore. Now, it could be a pain as well that's something that's, that didn't start out as good. It's just a pain we, we, that, that we're not happy with. But regardless, it's something that we don't need, even though its intentions might have been good when it first occurred. I have a clinical pearl here. And this was emphasized yesterday in Dr. Frickton's lecture. I don't know if anyone took that 7 o'clock lecture yesterday morning. He cited a patient that had headaches for 65 years. That blew away. I mean, most of the time when I see a patient, they've already been to God knows how many physicians or clinicians before they get to me. So a lot of times the pain is chronic, sometimes for months, but sometimes for you know, 10 years. I think my max was 20 at one point. But I've never had a patient that had a problem for 65 years. So the patient comes in having this problem for 65 years. He steps back and looks at it and says, how long have you been grinding your teeth? So the patient was grinding their teeth, creating a myofascial pain syndrome in their head that was giving them headaches. So the correction was, we don't need to do anything medication-wise. Just stop grinding your teeth. Start with that. So when the patient came back in for the next visit, it's how you doing? He says, I wish someone would have told me that 65 years ago. So basically what I'm saying is sometimes a patient can have a problem and all you have to do is take a step back and reevaluate that patient. So if I take a spear and stick it in your foot, it's going to hurt. Your presenting diagnosis is now foot pain, correct? How hard is it going to be to treat that pain while the spear is still in the foot? A heck of a lot harder than it is to take the spear out. And I will tell you that time after time after time, we'll see a patient that comes in that literally has the equivalent of a spear in their foot but every other provider in between took for granted that somebody else earlier had looked for the spear, but it turns out they didn't. So all you do is take a step back, reevaluate the patient, sort of do a little change in circumstance, and all of a sudden your outcomes dramatically change. So a little soapbox. We start our voyage this morning by talking about the, per the, the con concept of nociceptive pain. Nociceptive pain is a example of a good pain. It's giving us information about our outside environment, something that's hot, cold, sharp, dull. It's referred to as adaptive. Well, the way that I like to remember adaptive is if I touch something that's hot, I'm going to adapt my behavior really quick and move my finger, aren't I? To quote Dr. James Giordano, who's probably one of the most intelligent people I've ever met in my life. If you've ever met Jim, you, you would agree. He probably taught every single pain pathophys lecture that I had at pain meetings throughout the 90s and early 2000s. 
So according to Dr. Giordano, it's eudinic, meaning it's linked to normal tissue function. Now, I changed the definition a little bit here because I also said or damage because the or damage is still part of the physiologic process, right? Immune system, inflammatory reactions, that's all part of the pathophysiological normal practice, normal function. In contrast, a neuropathic pain is a non-purposeful pain. Remember, we assume it just, just assume it not be there, but it's not serving a purpose or a benefit to us, so we'd prefer that it be gone. To quote Dr. Giordano, it's non-maldinic. I mean, it is maldinic, I'm sorry. Maldinic, meaning it is bad. And in this case, it's usually associated with being linked to some sort of dis disorder, illness, or injury. Now, there's a cliffhanger here, so I'll give it to you. It's assumed by definition that there's some sort of error in the central or peripheral nervous system. We all agree? But I think that's only half the definition, and I'll explain why, but you have to give me a minute. When I first saw this image, which turns out was a magazine centerfold, so it's pretty bad when we're looking at magazine centerfolds and their pain pathophys. But it was a magazine centerfold adapted from Nature Review, but I loved this, this poster image. And the reason being is because it completely outlined the entire process of the pathophysiology of pain. And when you read it, you really come to a conclusion very quickly, which is whether you believe in intelligent design or evolution, the body says, I have multiple overlapping pathways that are in place so that if I hit my finger with a hammer, I am going to make sure that that signal gets to my brain no matter what. Well, that brings to mind what I like to call the asteroid theory. Okay, how does the asteroid theory apply to pain pathophys is what you're thinking, correct? Well, with our current technology, we have the ability, or we don't have the ability, of destroying a large asteroid that will be barreling towards Earth, do we? We might be able to influence it to get it to change its path slightly, or maybe break off a small chunk of it, so maybe when it hits, the total damage would not be as devastating as it would be if we just left it whole barreling towards Earth. We sometimes think of the way that we treat pain pharmacologically as being able to better modulate the nervous system and the body than the body can modulate itself. And I think that that's a, a false assumption. In reality, what we have with the treatments that we have currently available is I like to make it clear that I think we're influencing the system and how it functions. We are not controlling it. Does that make sense? I'm getting some nods, thus the asteroid theory. For those of you who don't know me, which is pretty much everybody in the room, except for a few small faces, I'm a car guy. So I like to use car and road analogies because it's something that works for me. And strangely enough, I was at a car event in, um, in uh, June in Kentucky, and th there was a lecture I was at for this car thing, and they were using a comparison for a medical model to explain the car problem, which I thought was kind of cute too. So from my perspective, I view this process of pain essentially as a roadmap. Well, when we look at it as a roadmap, it has certain landmarks or certain places. I'm seeing people snap pictures with cell phones. The slide deck is all in the app, so you don't have to worry about taking pictures of the slides. It's all there nice and clear. So basically, this is a roadmap. It's a roadmap that involves certain physiologic areas, which are our checkpoints, if you will, our landmarks. It involves a process that's bidirectional. It's like a two-way highway. It involves normal as well as pathological processes. It involves not only a hardcore, this is it, how we're functioning, but there is kind of a cognitive, an effective component. 
It's dynamic because it's occurring in real time. And lastly, the body has the ability of adapting to the demands placed upon it at the time to make changes which we refer to as neuroplasticity. Now, I heard a definition of, I don't like giving out erroneous information, but I heard a definition of neuroplasticity at another pain meeting. And the speaker called it, we call it neuroplasticity because the nervous system is plastic, and like plastic, it's cheap, it breaks easily. And that was the wrong analogy. I think the right analogy is, think about plastic. Plastic can be molded into anything. You just heat plastic up, mold into something, it changes. And if you're not happy with it, you heat it up and mold it into something else. When was the last time you tried to mold a rock? That's not happening. And you're never going to get the rock back to its original state if you try and change it by sculpting it, will you? And there's a key concept here as well, too, because we also talk about neuroplasticity as being a one-way highway, don't we? But it's actually a two-way highway. Think about this. And this is a kind of a weird analogy, too, because I've used it now for a couple of years, and I'm starting to get the term back, so it's kind, of, it's kind of interesting. You ever hear the term cardioplasticity? I haven't, but I coined it. So if you want to develop your cardiovascular nervous system, what do you do? Aerobic exercises, correct? So you do aerobic exercise, you develop your cardiovascular system, and you made a change. That would be like a cardioplastic change. A cardiologist at the Pain Week meeting in Chicago loved this. What happens if you stop doing your, your exercises? It goes back to the way it was before you started. Does it happen immediately or does it happen over time? Over time. So here's a key concept, and we see this happening all the time. We'll see a patient that might have had a problem for a number of years. We take a step backwards. We found the spear. We changed the, the working clinical diagnosis, changed the treatment, and got an outcome. The patient comes back in for their follow-up, and every single examination finding that you did on this patient that was positive before is now negative. You can tell that you know, their, their function and everything else has improved, but yet you ask the patient how they're doing, and what does the patient say? It still hurts. Because it's going to take time for the nervous system to adapt to the fact that your pain's not there anymore or your pathology's not there anymore, and you're going to have to be patient. Do you know what explaining that does to patients? It's like lifting a burden off their shoulders. It's like, oh, okay. So they're not coming in asking for a higher dose of the medication or some other treatment because they don't necessarily need it anymore. So that little explanation sometimes goes a really long way. Another board question you will see for any kind of certification exam is you'll see the common types of pain defined. So the first one, obviously, is nociceptive pain. Well, nociceptive pain is we're taking information from our outside environment, something that's hot, sharp, cold, dull. We are converting it into electrical impulse, which is something the body can managing, manage. We conduct along the peripheral nerve. That then synapses at the spinal cord, is transmitted through the spinal cord, and arrives at the brain. Is that a normal or a pathological process? Normal. What about this concept of inflammatory pain? For the concept of inflammatory pain, we're actually involving the same mechanism, if you will, very similar receptor sites and exact same nerve function, but now we've added in something new to the mix, which is inflammatory mediators and the immune system. Is that a normal or an abnormal response? That's a good answer because that was a trick question she said initially. Well, technically, it's an abnormal response. It's a normal response that might involve a pathology. So that was a trick question. How about this neuropathic pain concept? Well, neuropathic pain, by definition, says, I think there's something wrong here somewhere in the central nervous system so that something's not working right. Error in processing, error in function, something's broken. 
Agreed? I'm seeing a lot of heads nodding, which is good, but hold that thought. Until about 10 years ago, actually more like 13, 14 now, that's where the discussion ended until Wolf came out with this fourth category of pain that he called functional pain. And functional pain is actually dysfunctional pain syndrome, so it gets a little bit complicated when you think about it. So what was in this functional pain category? Well, this was the category that became the one that received things that didn't quite fit the nociceptive neuropathic and inflammatory pain categories. This is where you put things like um, irritable bowel pain, non-cardiac chest pain, or um, certain forms of fibromyalgia. There's a cliffhanger there, too. All right, here's my take on this, though. While I do believe that fourth category is necessary, I think as we move forward in the pain world, we're going to do things that either alter this fourth category so that it is going to be better defined into other maybe new categories or subcategories. But as it stands, I think it's going to change. Here's an example of a patient that I saw at Evans Army Community Hospital at Fort Carson. It was a soldier who had been admitted to the ER, I think, five times in four weeks for chest pain, but they couldn't find any cardiac pathology. So that's non-cardiac chest pain, correct? We took a step backwards, found a rib arthropathy. He had an irritation, inflammatory pathology at the costovertebral joint. So we injected it and manipulated it and made his non-cardiac chest pain go away. So the, and never to return. So the example is, well, here we took something that was a functional pain and we moved it to the inflammatory pain category and we treated it to resolution. So that's one of the reasons why I think this category is going to have to be a little bit better defined, but we'll see how it goes. I borrowed this slide from Dr. Clark because I think it really does say a lot about kind of differentiating between nociceptive and neuropathic pain, correct? On the left side of the scale, in the red circle, we have the typical arthritic, arthritic pain conditions like osteorheumatoid arthritis, musculoskeletal conditions. We have the sprain strain injuries you see with sporting injuries. Make sense? Nociceptive pain? On the right side of the equation, we have in the green circle the classic neuropathic pain conditions, diabetic peripheral neuropathic pain, post-traumatic neuralgia, trigeminal neuralgia, correct? Then in the middle, we have this thing called mixed. Well, we have things like in here like fibromyalgia and headaches. And the mixed category basically is mixed because it seems to have overlap from each of the other categories. There's a good plug in here for me too, which is called shameless self-promotion. Because if you notice, back pain is in all three categories. I loved this slide when I first saw it for that reason alone. Well, there are different causes for back pain. So what we're going to do in the two-hour masterclass on back pain on Friday is we're going to try and look at how to add components to our clinical examination to help differentiate what the underlying pain generator or generators might be for back pain so that you can see where in this mix the patient might be because if you can determine where that patient is, you can better select what treatment is more specifically appropriate for that patient at that time. So it's a shameless self-promotion slide that I didn't create. For those of you who sat through the pain terminology this session this morning, you know that this is the, the slide or this is the, the topic that Dr. McPherson and I go head-to-head -head with because it's controversial. But this is the most important slide of the entire slide deck. And that is, this is the process of pain transmission, in a sense, distilled down to one slide. This is the board question. This is what everybody has to remember. That process includes four steps, transduction, conduction, transmission, perception. Um, Dr. McPherson maintains, as do many others, that there is another step called modulation. And it's not that modulation does not, agree, does not exist in this process, but I view it as not a landmark. Remember, I'm the, the roadmap kind of guy. But because modulation is part of the other processes, I don't think it's an individual step. So if you ever see a board question on this subject, I just highly recommend that you look at the wording of the question carefully 
to know whether modulation is required or, re or recommended or what they're looking for as far as the answer goes. But here's what I want to do. A number of years ago, I remember hearing somebody going into a board exam. It was like an AAP management meeting, actually. They were memorizing this. So under their breath, you can hear transduction, conduction, transmission, perception, transduction, conduction, transmission, perception. It's like, don't do that. Let's learn it in a way that makes sense, and then it should be easy. So let's start with transduction. A transducer is anything that converts one form of energy into another. Remember those old, I say old, it's not that long ago, but you remember those old-fashioned computer monitors, the big heavy deep ones, or the big old television screens? They're cathode ray tubes. So what happens is you're taking an electrical energy in the form of a beam of electrons, you're slamming them against the glass screen coated with phosphors. The phosphors then pick up the energy and glow and give off light. So that computer monitor or television was essentially a transducer. Make sense? Okay, extra credit points, though the points don't matter because this is like whose line is it anyway. What is the reverse of that that we all have? Oh, come on. <laughs> your eyes, exactly. Your eyes are converting light energy into an electrical energy that the body can then handle or manage. Make sense? So a transducer is anything that converts one form of energy into another, and the first step of transduction is converting this mechanical, chemical, thermal energy into an electrical impulse at the level of the skin that the body can then do something with. So that's our first step. The second step, I used to date myself because when I went to college, one of the, for a semester or two, I actually had a commute, which really did suck. So the first part of my journey, when I had to do that, I usually had to either buy a ticket in advance or get a ticket from the conductor for this first part of the commuting, who, if you had a ticket, would then punch your ticket. So I'm thinking, wow, that's a sign of the past. Well, a couple of weeks ago, I took a train up from Richmond, Virginia, to Washington, D.C. to go to a REMS meeting. And I bought the ticket online for Amtrak, and as soon as I got on the train, the conductor's walking by, looking at everybody's tickets and punching them or putting the thing about where you go. So the conductor theory still works. So the first leg of the journey, which is called conduction, to me, I always remember it because it's the first part of my commute that involved a conductor punching the ticket. And she's laughing, but that's how I remember it. <laughs> so now the signal is conducted to the spinal cord, where we hit that first-order synapse, now it has to jump over to the spinal cord, which it goes to the ascending spinal pathways, where it's transmitted. Well, I live in Richmond, Virginia, and unless you're going to a hub city, airport-wise, you have to transfer to someplace. So on my trip this time, I had to transfer in Atlanta. I can, out of all the places I had to transfer, I think Detroit was the worst, because I was on the opposite side of the airport with 10 minutes in between flights. And then you got to the door, and they slammed it right in front of you as you were like 10 feet in front of the door and saying, sorry, you're not getting on. Nice. So I remember the next part of my journey as transmission because I always have to transfer being the airport is the equivalent of that first order neuron at the spine. So I always have to transfer planes or other mode of transportation to get to my final destination. So for me, that next step is transmission because of the transfer. And the final step is perception because this is how the, when the signal gets to the brain, this is the final destination. Let's think about this for a second. We are all genetically similar. We have some variation from patient to patient, but in a sense, if you look at it, the dividing line stops here where one patient is pretty much very similar to the next with a little bit of, of difference, but for the most part, we're all about the same. It's this final step of perception where all the variability happens from one patient to the next. 
because this is the part of the process that involves the behavioral side, the limbic side, the cognitive side, the affective side of the equation. This is also where most of the controversy is these days, isn't it, if you think about it? This is what sets the patient apart who on a scale from 1 to 10 with a paper cut, and you tell them that this is, you know, a 10 is the worst pain it could ever be. It can never get any worse than this. This is like near death. And you tell them, ask them how bad their pain is, and they say, a 15? We've all seen that, right? But you can contrast that to the next patient who will walk in your, in your office, and we'll, we'll embellish here a little bit too. He might have a 2 by 4 sticking out of his abdomen, and he looks down and says, ooh, I think that's a flesh wound. We'll call it a 3. Okay, by a show of hands, who would rather treat the patient with the 2 by 4 and the 3? I'm there, because we know it's going to be a lot harder to treat the patient with the 15 and the paper cut, isn't it? <laughs> I don't think I can, the question was, can you ask a patient, if, you know, do you, how about if I slap you, will it still be a 15? I'm not really a fan of that. <laughs> Attacking patients does not go a long way. It's bad enough when you tell a patient, you know, pain can be good, and they think you're a little weird. So these are the molecular elements, or many of the molecular elements that are involved in this process of pain. And I put this slide up here only for one reason, and that is to remind you that it is an overwhelmingly complex process. And we are not going to be covering all these things today but that you have many an opportunity to hear more of the discussion concerning some of these things at Pain Week. But if you started talking about each one of these molecules today, I think you'd be done by Saturday, and you'd probably be bored to sin. So the process of transduction, basically, we're converting this mechanical... Ooh, this is not the right slide deck, because I'm missing a word here. So I left off... I had a, the latest deck, and apparently this is not it. So I'm missing thermal there, too. I apologize. So this is where we convert mechanical, thermal, or chemical stimulation into electric charge. It involves receptors that are activated directly by these stimuli, and it can also involve receptors that are triggered by the immune inflammatory response. But the end result is the same, that we're converting it into an action potential at the level of the skin. Just to start the process rolling, the mediators involved in the process are prostaglandins, leukotrienes, substance P, histamine, bradykinin, serotonin, hydroxyacids, inflammatory cytokines, and I always leave reactive oxygen species for last because I can't say it fast. So what you're thinking now is, wow, this is an overwhelmingly redundant, overlapping process. But you should also be thinking, wow, we have a lot of pharmacologic targets, and we just started the ball rolling, don't we? So now we have to get the signal from the periphery where we transduced it to an electrical impulse over to the spinal cord. And that process is called conduction. So that peripheral nerve impulse, if you will, is conducted along two primary fibers, A delta and C fibers. Now here is my road analogy and why it works really well here. I view A delta fibers as are large diameter, or large diameter fibers. They're like the latest, greatest interstate highway system. They might be six lanes either direction, large diameter. They're rapidly conducting, 10 to 30 meters per second. Well, your speed limit's like, you know, 70 miles per hour. They're myelinated. Yes, I know, myelin is manufactured by Schwann cells, which are a glial cell, which allows for saltatory conduction so the signals can travel. But for our discussion, simplified purposes, it's like the oil that helps things slide along. They take thermal and mechanical stimuli, or they carry thermal and mechanical stimuli. Well, this is the, you can drive a truck or your car on the interstate, but you're not riding a bicycle, you're not jogging, and you're not walking on the interstate. They have small receptor fields. You can only get on at certain exits, right? On and off at certain exits. You can't get on or off the interstate any place you'd like. Now we contrast that to C fibers, which are the smaller diameter, slower conducting fibers. 
correct? Well, they're like the local roads. They're small diameter. They only might have one lane going either direction. Well, the local roads in your neighborhoods have slower speed limits, don't they? 25 miles per hour, but in this case, 0.5 to 2 meters per second. They're cross-sensitized. What does that mean? Well, you ever notice what happens on one block in your neighborhood can affect what happens on the next? They're unmyelinated. Yeah, I know the whole discussion about glial cell, uh, Schwann cells and, and myelin, but no oil to help things slide along. They're polymodal. They take all comers. You can walk, jog, ride a bike, drive your car, truck, we don't care, walk. They take everybody. They have broad receptor fields. Well, you can come and go wherever you'd like. See, that road analogy works really well, doesn't it? Never an excuse to confuse A-delta and C-fibers. If we cut that cross-section of that peripheral nerve, though, there is yet a third fiber, and that's A-beta fiber. A-beta fibers are even larger diameter myelinated fibers. But why don't we worry about them largely with our discussion on pain? He's, the answer was, he said, because they don't transmit pain signals. Well, it's because they are involved in largely proprioception rather than nociception. But there's a cliffhanger here, and the cliffhanger is, there is an explanation buried in this that could account for a neuropathic or neurologic explanation for certain forms of, not all, because I think there are many different causes of fibromyalgia myofascial pain, but there is a little possible explanation for certain forms of fibromyalgia myofascial pain hidden here. No, but well, I'll try and address that. So you have to wait, but we'll get to it. All right, so now we have these signals that are going towards the spine that are being conducted to the spinal cord, and I want to bring up another concept, and that is we have these things called excitatory neurotransmitters, and we have these things called inhibitory neurotransmitters. So the excitatory neurotransmitters, substance P, CGRP, aspartate, my fave glutamate, are saying go, 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 go. They're like the cheering group. On the other hand, we have these inhibitory neurotransmitters, gabaglycine, somatostatin, alpha-2 agonists, saying, whoa, slow down. So basically, you have this like scale that you're tipping. If the excitatory neurotransmitters are a little bit higher, you're gonna, the, ten, the signal's going to have the tendency to go. But on the other hand, if the inhibitory neurotransmitters are higher, you're going to tip the scale the other way, and the signal's going to have a tendency to be slowed. Make sense? So there's a balance of justice, tipping the scales involved in the field of pain. So our A-delta and C-fibers come into the spinal cord, synapse in the dorsal horn, and those signals now have to be traveled or ascend through the spinal cord, which is the process known as transmission. Well, they do that along two separate fibers. Even though they both synapse in the, in the dorsal horn and they travel along spinal thalamic pathways, the A-delta fibers ascend or are transmitted through the neospinal thalamic pathways, the latest, greatest, like NEO, think the latest, greatest superhighways, those are our latest, greatest models. On the other hand, the C-fiber synapse in the dorsal horn at their first order synapse, and then they ascend through the paleospinal thalamic pathways, the old ones, like the local road. Not only are they local and slower, but the A-delta, well, I should say the, the neospinal thalamic pathways basically make a beeline expressway to the thalamus before going to the cortex, and the paleospinal thalamic pathways kind of make a stop along the way, like in the midbrain, so they are, in fact, the local road. So that road analogy works great even when looking at the ascending spinal pathways as well. Pretty cool, isn't it? To add to the mix, because we're going to keep on building this model as we go, we have another thing coming down now, which you've all heard of undoubtedly, called the descending inhibitory tracts. 
and they're norepinephrine and serotonin based. They are also acting at this first, first order synapse. So they are essentially acting like a toll gate that comes down and says, go or no go. See how the process is getting more complicated as we go? So basically, if we think about some of the potential problems or some of the things that we can see with respect to this idea of neuroplasticity or the changes that we can have in the central nervous system, well, we could change the receptor itself. The, we didn't really mention the fact that there are connections between these neurons that can be affected. We did kind of bring out the fact that there are neurotransmitters, so if you change the balance of excitatory versus inhibitory neurotransmitters, you're going to affect whether you have a greater tendency for the signal to go through or not. We've now added in the descending inhibitory pathways that are basically saying go or no go, that are norepinephrine and serotonin based. But these are all some of the things that can happen essentially which reflect the nervous system modifying itself to address the changes that are, are necessary based on the demands placed upon it at the time. Some of the key terms we hear associated with pain in our patients are peripheral and central sensitization, correct? Well, here's my take on peripheral sensitization, because I like to keep things simple. Remember, that's our goal for today. So let's see. What's your name? Dana. Dana. Everyone, Dana. Dana, everyone. I can take Dana's arm and tap it all day long. She might think it's annoying, but is it painful? And the answer is really no. But if I rub Dana's forearm until it's all raw and irritated and red and inflamed and start tapping her forearm, what's going to happen? you're going to get an exaggerated response. Thank you. Because what we've done is we've created a sensitizing soup that involves inflammatory cytokines and, and prostaglandins and things like that that essentially now we're going to result in either a prolonged firing rate or a decreased threshold for firing so that the response is greater than it would have been outside of the, the pathology. Make sense? That's peripheral sensitization in a nutshell. I remember sitting through an hour-long session one day on peripheral sensitization, and after I got it, I'm thinking, couldn't you just make it simple? Now, central sensitization is a whole other ball of wax because there are far more things that could be going on. So before I knock out central sensitization, I wanted to hit two of the key terms that we talked about this morning in the terminology session, which are hyperalgesia and allodynia. So for those of you who were not there, um, allodynia is essentially a painful a painful response to something that should normally be innocuous. So the examples that I like to use are think about your gout patient that has pain in their great toe just from a sheet touching it. That's allodynia. Think about your complex regional pain syndrome patient that feels the air hitting the hairs on their forearm and that elicits a painful event. That's allodynia. Now on the other hand, hyperalgesia is an exaggerated pain response to something that should normally be uncomfortable but it shouldn't necessarily be painful. One of the best ways of really plotting that out, I thought, was this graph. Um, because what this shows, essentially, is blue being the normal response. If you look at it, we have an entire area where the sheet's hitting my toe or the air is hitting the hair in my forearm where I don't even pay attention to that. That's innocuous. But then as you increase the pain intensity, or I should say stimulus intensity, and look at the pain intensity, it kind of starts going up on a slope. Well. In the presence of central sensitization, what appears to be happening is this curve is phase shifted to the left. So now you have this area under the curve where you're feeling a painful stimuli or a, a painful sensation to something that would have normally been innocuous before, and that's the area in red, allodynia. And then for hyperalgesia, you're seeing that you're getting the perception of a higher intensity of pain to a lower stimulus intensity. Make sense? The only thing that's not right about that graph and every other one I've seen, which is why I'm going to modify it for next year, is 
There is no define, find, find, let's try that again. Find defining line. That's why we have water. Find dividing line between allodynia and hyperalgesia. So it really should be like a color phase shift. All right, so basically what's happening for peripheral sensitization is we're, we're at that peripheral nerve, which is basically at this point of transduction, we're getting activation or some kind of receptor being activated by a mechanical thermal or chemical stimuli. We have other receptors that are in the same place that are being triggered by the immune or inflammatory response. We also have this thing in the periphery called an MOR, and you know, everyone knows what that is, right? On the graph, it's right here, but we all, I can't stop shaking there. You all know what an MOR is, myopia receptor. Do we ever talk about myopia receptors as being in the periphery? Not really. There was a great study that came out shortly after World War II, actually, where they talked about using injectable um, morphine on the battlefield as a local anesthetic. There's one for you. Now, do I think that this has a role with a lot of the exogenous opioids that we take? Probably not. I think it plays more of a role with endogenous opioids. Like if I get my arm bitten off by a tiger, I still want to be able not to think about my pain and be able to run away and preserve life. But at least there's the potential for it, so we have to really pay attention to it. And whether you're looking at the mu opioid receptor, the receptors that are triggered by the mechanical thermal or chemical stimuli, or the ones that are triggered by this immune inflammatory response, ultimately what happens is at the layer of that receptor, we're generating an action potential. And that's what's key for our discussion purposes this morning. Now, for central sensitization, we have a lot more potential things to play with. So I wanted to talk about a couple of those. The first one that I had on the list is activation. So here's my ridiculously oversimplified example of activation. If I take that cup of water that I had there, I can walk back and forth across the floor. If that cup is half full, and I probably will not spill a drop, will I? But if I fill this cup to the very brim with water and I start taking a step, especially with my arm the way it is these days, it's definitely going to shake and I'm going to spill a lot, a lot of that water. Is that not true? So I view activation or wind up the dorsal hormone nose receptors as my cup is filled up. So the slightest little jarring causes overflow of what? How about an excitatory neurotransmitter like glutamate? Makes sense? Because then glutamate would bind the NMDA receptor and open up the channel causing that signal in the fire. This is where, where Dr. McPherson's definition of modulation comes in, right? Because we can affect the delicate balance between excitatory versus inhibitory neurotransmitters, and that's going to give you a tendency whether or not the signal is going to get through or not. Or have a, we have the decreased inhibitory path, the, the, the uh, descending inhibitory pathway that's coming down saying go or no go, that's norepinephrine and serotonin-based. All these are things that can happen as part of central sensitization, can they not? So basically, glutamate binds, and this is at their first order synapse at the spine. So this is the signal comes in, synapses in the dorsal horn of the spinal cord, and this is at that first order synapse. Glutamate binds an NMDA receptor. When, the, when glutamate binds the NMDA receptor, NMDA receptor, the receptor opens and allows for the influx of sodium and calcium, which generates that action potential. If you do something to change the way the receptor behaves, or this delicate balance between glutamate and NMDA, well, that's going to play a role. You can have glutamate bind the receptor so that it stays open longer. You can block the receptor. You can do a multitude of different things that we have pharmacologically to play with that are going to have an effect on central sensitization. Substance P acts in a very similar manner. This is, where the, where this, this is why this is the old slide deck. There's supposed to be a 5-HT down here. So this is where the norepinephrine and serotonin receptors also play a role for the descending inhibitory tract. That's not all that's going on. 
So, so far for central sensitization, just to build the model, remember we have the delicate balance of excitatory versus inhibitory neurotransmitters. We have the descending inhibitory pathways coming down the norepinephrine serotonin based. And we have anything that can be involving this glutamate NMDA activity. We all agree? We also have at this little location another mu opioid receptor. Where is it? There it is, right there. So there's an opioid receptor at the first-order synapse at the spinal cord as well. That's still not all that's going on at that area. So what we have is the A-beta, I'm sorry, see, I even screwed that up, A-delta and C-fibers coming into synapse in the dorsal horn, right? We have the descending inhibitory pathway, which I'm sorry was blue on the other slides, but it's green on this one, coming down at that first-order synapse in the dorsal horn. But we have these other things going on and affecting this area too, like glial cells, you remember, for those of you who are older like I am, when we went to school and we were taught that glial cells are like the scaffolding that holds the structures together. Definition of glia is glue. You know, they're inert structures. They don't do anything. We had an hour-long session on glial cells at Pain Week a couple of years ago by Dr. Pepin. It was one of the best sessions on glial cells I've ever sat through. I was so hoping to see it on the schedule again today because I can't do glial cells justice in 30 seconds. But here's my take on glial cells. Glial cells are like the roving reporters of the nervous system. Think about it. Anytime there's a natural disaster or some major thing going on, what do we do? We, the major networks send reporters to the scene to give us a direct line of information back to tell us what's going on. Well, basically what happens is glial cells either migrate to or become activated to give you an entirely another pathway for those signals to get back to the brain. So glial cells are like the roving reporters. What are GABAergic inhibitory interneurons? What do they do? Well, the name kind of gives it away, doesn't it? Inhibitory interneurons? Well, don't laugh at this one. But I view the, the, the GABAergic inhibitory interneurons as the Pac-Man of the central nervous system. Remember the video game Pac-Man? Now we're all dating ourselves, right? So you had these like little smiley face things that were going and gobbling something up. The key question is, what were they gobbling up? Glutamate, an excitatory neurotransmitter. And then to show you how complicated the process is, guess what spinal cord glial cells metabolize? GABA. And the whole process starts again. So are we doing good so far for trying to overly simplify a very complex process? Was that a uh-uh? <laughs> really? <laughs> I got a lot of nods, only one uh-uh. So so far I think I'm okay. All right, so you remember I said there was a cliffhanger for certain forms of fibromyalgia, myofascial pain, and a neuropathic component? Mind you, I am a firm believer that many causes of fibromyalgia, myofascial pain, are associated with regional pain syndromes, as well as a variety of other different things like um, electrolyte deficiencies, hormone deficiencies, um, uh, vitamin deficiencies, a multitude of different things. And I think in order to really treat your patient, you need to take a step back and try and figure out what that is. But here is a potential neuropathic explanation just to keep in your armamentarium as well. A-delta and C-fibers come in and synapse in the dorsal horn of the spine, and they have a certain receptor field where they match. So that would be over here on both sides, okay? A-beta fibers, remember those fibers that are responsible for proprioception versus nociception, also come in and synapse in the dorsal horn. And in certain cases, you can get an alteration of the receptor field. So now that that A-beta fiber is now... Um, essentially triggering in this receptor field fibers that are normally triggered by C fibers, for example. 
so that it is now sending a painful impulse because of, in a sense, crosstalk. So that is a plausible explanation, but doesn't explain all because we know that there can be different causes for that clinical presentation, but this is at least a neuropathic explanation for one potential explanation. And that crosstalk phenomena, if my slide would advance, there you go, doesn't occur only at the spine. It could also occur in the peripheral nerve. Because if you cut or injure a peripheral nerve, you're going to get the release of inflammatory cytokines and neurotransmitters and other things that will also aggravate, irritate, or influence a nerve fiber running parallel to it. So that crosstalk can occur in the periphery as well. Another potential neuropathic explanation for fibromyalgia or myofascial, neck, uh, uh, myofascial pain. Again, accrediting the fact that that is only one potential cause and there are many. So what we have so far, if we take inventory for central sensitization, we talked about briefly changes to the, the receptor itself. We talked about somehow influencing this delicate balance between the activity of glutamate and NMDA receptors. We talked about modulation, which is the delicate balance between excitatory and inhibitory neurotransmitters tipping the scale. We have the descending inhibitory pathways coming down and say go or no go. We've now added in the activation and migration of glial cells, and we didn't even talk about changes in the thalamus or primary sensory cortex yet. Fun, isn't it? Which brings me to this slide. We all remember the primary sensory cortex because we all knew that that had to do with sensation, the primary and the motor cortex being involved with motor. So that's where you see the picture of the homunculus on the brain, right? The classic big head, big hands. And for some of us, the heads are even bigger. Come on, I had to get a joke in there someplace. I never used that one before, but that was pretty good. All right, well, thanks to modern imaging studies and things like that, we now have been able to pick out some of the other parts of the brain that are also involved in this rich experience that we call pain, right? We have the thalamus, which you know as being the router, and we've known that for a while. But we also now know that the hippocampus is involved in this pain imprinting pain memory. We have the amygdala that's involved in the emotional aspect of pain, the prefrontal cortex, which is involved in motor planning, the anterior cingular cortex, which is the context of the situation of pain, like have I been shot, am I in labor? Well, not me, but... Um, and lastly, the insular cortex, which is pain judged to the degree of where it is and where it is imagined. And truthfully, I think that this model is going to change even further with some of the new imaging techniques that we have, like when you combine um, uh, diffuser tensor studies with functional MRI. So I think we're going to find even more parts of the brain and more physiologic things that are occurring in the brain responsible for contributing to this rich experience that we call pain. So I can't believe that I actually got this far in this amount of time. That's pretty good. So basically, these are the four steps that we have in the, pro in the pain process. Perception, well, transduction, conduction, transmission, perception. And these are some of the pharmacologic therapies that we have that would affect these components of the pathways. Now, I kind of did the same slide in a slightly different perspective, but it's the same information. What I wanted to take the last few minutes and talk about would be the pharmacologic side and, and a couple of other things really quick. The first is we talked about guidelines when we walked in for a few minutes. And up until about 10, 15 years ago, we only really had one good guideline for pain, which was the World Health Organization guideline for treating chronic cancer pain, correct? Now, the good thing about this guideline was that it talked about a stepwise manner in which we should treat these patients, which I completely agree with. I think I've heard Lynn McPherson and some other people, a lot of other people actually, always say uh, uh, start low and start slow, right? Good, good idea when it comes to pain. What's the biggest controversial part of this guideline, if you will, today? 
opioids. They come too early in the step. So we shouldn't throw out the whole guideline. It was just the organization of what the steps are. Now, uh, this definitely is missing the other slide. The other slide that I had in there from the newer deck was, um, I don't know if any of you guys have seen the VA DOD um, new step for treating pain, the, that thing. You know, I'd like to get that slide up. I'll try and get it up at the end because I'll go back. It basically has a new four-step process, but step one was involves all patient-oriented things. These are things that you have to give information to the patient that the patient has to do themselves. That puts the patient having skin in the game because we all know that when the patient has skin in the game, you do slant the cards for outcomes being in your favor, don't you? I will try and get that slide up because I think it's really important because I'd seen that slide in various, you know, various things over the past year or so, but it, I was taking a webinar back a couple of weeks ago and it finally slapped me in the face and said, oh my God, we need to take this not just in the, VOD and the VA and DOD, but this needs to be moved out really into common practice because this is, I think, something that's going to help because it gives us a way to integrate not only pharmacologic tools but all these other things that we have in our armamentarium and do it in a rational manner that makes sense. So I am a fan. All right, what we have to work with for our pharmacologic targets are essentially acetaminophen, NSAIDs, antiepileptics, TCAs, SNRIs, topicals. I added in muscle relaxants because although we don't typically talk about that as a pain medication, we often use those in conjunction with treating our pain patients, and there was an important reason I left it in there, so you'll see in a second. And then the most controversial topic of all, opioids. So let's talk about really quick acetaminophen, which I can't do like Dr. McPherson can. I think she did a whole hour one day on acetaminophen. So we all know about the potential for being hepatotoxic, yes? And her study that came out the other day that talked about a high incidence of hyperactive children being born um, as a result of their mothers being on acetaminophen during pregnancy. So there might be another concern coming down the pike that we have to pay attention to. What's the biggest baggage we think we have with acetaminophen? It's the fact that it's over-the-counter, because if it's over-the-counter, patients assume it to be fine, right? Safe. So if one is good, two is better. 25 must be miraculous. But what does 25 do? Ooh, liver failure. Correct. But patients don't understand that. They think it's because if it's over-the-counter, it must be safe. So that's a problem. From our standpoint of pain, what is the concern we should have for acetaminophen or consideration we should have with respect to acetaminophen other than the hepatotoxicity? Acetaminophen basically works on blocking prostaglandin activity, but it does so centrally, not in the periphery. Well, I kind of believe in the art of war. And if I have a battle maybe sitting all the way out in the field over there, I want my first line of defense to be at that location. I don't want to wait for the battle to come up to me where all I have in front of me is a moat, and I just have one last option to defend myself. So I like taking the battle to where it starts. Well, if whatever's causing our pain is in the periphery, uh, acetaminophen doesn't really hit that mark because it's a centrally acting medication. That brings us to the concept of NSAIDs. There was a, this deck is going to be missing the next slide, too. The other slide I want to put here is Dr. McPherson has a slide in the terminology lecture that shows the relative balance or weighting of COX-1 versus COX-2 selectivity on the NSAIDs. Now, NSAIDs have that same, because many are over-the-counter, have that same concern with respect to patient comfort levels. You know, one is good, two is better, 25 is grand. But we know that that can cause a problem for GI and cardiac issues, yes. All right. So what I like about NSAIDs, though, is they have both peripheral and central activity. And that's important because now that hits the mark for me doing something that's out in the periphery. 
So I'm taking it to the site of action. There's a fourth category here that I just added to on this called lipoxins. Have you guys heard of lipoxins or lipoxygenase? That's part of the same arachidonic acid pathway, but what it is, it's a step of the pathway that triggers resolution of the injury or inflammatory process. So I think there's a whole new line of medications that are going to pop up relative to a class, at least, that looks at the lipoxygenase side of the equation that might be extremely helpful with respect to the treatment of our pain patients. How about opioids? Now, opioids come in long-acting, short-acting, and the immediate onset transmucosal products, we know. The discussion when I started in pain management used to be all about pain, right? This is where all the baggage has to be and all the controversy, it seems, at this meeting or any other pain meeting when it comes to the field of pain, yes? So now the discussion isn't just pain control, it includes what? Addiction, diversion, uh, you name it, and now even overdose, especially the last couple of years, thanks to the, the, the greater recognition of naloxone products. Right? So the primary location of opioids for action, we all know to be on the limbic side of the equation, which is the brain, perception side, correct? We also know that there are mu opioid receptors in, in the spine now, because we talked about the one at that first order synapse, yes? We also talked about a mu opioid receptor in the skin, yes? How about the fact that mu opioid receptors also play a role or can play a role in the descending inhibitory pathways that are norepinephrine and serotonin-based? Higher up in the, in the cascade of a pathway working through GABA, GABA has the ability of turning some neurons that are on off and some that are off on, which is essentially higher up in that same descending inhibitory pathway that's norepinephrine and serotonin-based coming down and saying go or no-go. There's even an opioid out there that has a molecule on it that specifically targets this pathway in addition to that. But this is where the idea of rational polypharmacy should be coming into play too, isn't it, if you think about it? Because if you put a patient on, let's say, something like an SNRI and an opioid, wouldn't it be neat if you can really get the recognition that maybe we can get away with a lower dose of each because maybe the combined effect of the two together might have a greater effect than either one might have had on their own? That's called rational polypharmacy. And I'll bet we do that in clinical practice, but where's the clinical trial that shows that? The problem is most of the clinical trials we have are single drug studies. So they don't reflect how we use the drug in clinical practice all too often, and that's concerning. So the industry is not going to change until we start making demands, which I really would love to see. So basically, opioids, when you think about it, are this umbrella that seems to have an effect on basically influencing the entire part of the pathway, potentially, from Transduction, conduction, transmission, to perception. Tricyclic antidepressants. There are speakers here, some of them that will lean towards the fact that we spend or we over-prescribe or over-utilize TCAs. Another group will say that we underutilize TCAs. I don't have an opinion except to say that some of our patients have certain comorbidities, and if this patient has a comorbidity that would necessitate using a TCA, I'm all there. Our concerns for TCAs, we have to worry about tolerability, and for some, are some more than others, especially cardiotoxicity. But TCAs basically have an interesting effect because they work on two different parts of the pathway, and their way that they function is independent of the antidepressant function. So TCAs basically work the same way that NSRIs do on the descending inhibitory pathways that are norepinephrine serotonin-based, but they also work on essentially the neural blockade and help decrease that sodium and uh, calcium channel activity. So they have a two-prong effect that works for pain, again, independent of the antidepressant function. How about SSRIs? 
I remember coming back from a pain meeting in 1990, where they, 1990 some, like seven or something like that, where they basically were saying we should put all of our patients on SSRIs. Anybody ever try that? So what you find out is there's basically no pain relief. The patient might feel better about being in pain, but they didn't get any relief of their pain. Well, why is that? Well, the idea is, if you look at serotonin receptors, there are a bunch of them that are excitatory and a bunch of them that are inhibitory, so I think that we might be canceling it out. So it can go either way. And I had a patient the other day, well, a couple of years ago. Oh, it was the other day. We were talking about the same patient because she just came back. Um, where she was on so many different medications that affect the serotonergic, nerve, the serotonergic system, I think she had a, a, basically the entry level of a serotonin syndrome. So you have to be careful with that. How about SNRIs? Well, SNRIs have really come to being a lot more common use with respect to pain. We didn't even think about these when I, when I started pain. Venlafaxin was the first on the scene. What's the pain indication for venlafaxin? Trick question. There isn't one. No, so venlafaxin is serotonergic at lower doses, noradrenergic at higher doses, right? The next one on the scene was deluxetine, and there are more. These are just three in the class. Deluxetine, which seems to be more equally balanced for norepinephrine and serotonin activity, and there are several different pain indications for deluxetine, correct? Melnasopram was the next to hit, and that seems to favor the noradrenergic side of the equation, also with pain indications. So the important things to remember for SNRIs are that they are directly involved in the blocking of the norepinephrine and serotonin reuptake, which is the descending inhibitory pathway that comes down and say go or no go. Make sense? And then from the standpoint of tolerability, they're much better than TCAs. So if the patient doesn't have that comorbidity that would necessitate the TCA, then I'm, I'm going for the SNRI all day long. So adjuvant anti-epileptics. What pain lecture talking about medications for pain would be complete without talking about the anti-epileptics? Weren't these like the first ones that we thought about as treating our neuropathic pain patients? Right. Now, what's interesting in this class is I think virtually all the medications here, with the exception of a couple, have slightly different mechanisms of action. So I have seen, and it's not necessarily alarming, to use multiple medications from this class, although done carefully, to obtain a, a clinical outcome that might be favorable. I actually have a patient where his problem is actually Tourette's. He doesn't curse, but he's got all the twitching. And we got his Tourette's under control by combining two of the medications in this class at relatively low doses, which completely got rid of his side effect profile that he had when he had higher doses of any of the other medications. So it was pretty slick. So from our standpoint, the, the mechanism of action here is we're going to directly have an effect on sodium and calcium channel activity. Remember, getting that that action potential through, but also somehow affecting this delicate balance of uh, glutamate and the NMDA receptor. Because remember, you can change the way the receptor behaves, block it, um, do all sorts of things to in influence where this thing goes. The two most common medications we've seen in this class these days are gabapentin and pregabalin, correct? Gabapentin seems to be the most common. What's the key thing you have to remember about gabapentin? This dosing is quasi-intuitive, right? As you increase the dose, the bioavailability goes down. You know what I've seen that I find really concerning? Because there are two new slants on gabapentin where they've looked at a different way of making this molecule behave. One of them uses like a gastroretentive technology that essentially slows the release that allows for greater absorption. The other one tagged a molecule onto the gabapentin so that it can be absorbed further down in the digestive tract rather than just proximal absorption. So what that means is you're going to get a greater bioavailability with those products. 
So is that directly transferable to dosing when it comes to converting that to generic? And the answer is no, but how often does that happen? Pretty often, doesn't it? And then even though this is off-label, when you look at these, other, these sort of, we'll call them extended-release gabapentinoids as a, an example, don't you notice that your patients are getting away on lower doses than they were on the, on the non-extended-release versions? So something to pay attention to. So anti-epileptics are having an effect on membrane stability and working at this NMDA glutamate activity largely. How about topicals? I love topicals, although the indication for topicals are pretty limited, but we use them off-label for a multitude of different things. I used to have a practice team, what I mean about going over, but we're good because we have a break. I, have a, I used to have a practice near Atlantic City, and we used to see all these casino employees. Well, as a casino employee, if you were a dealer or a cocktail waitress, you had to be happy and smiling. You can't be wearing a brace. So if you wear a brace, the, the pit boss would send you home, and if you weren't happy, smiling, engaging customers, they'd send you home too. But workers' comp, they get minimum wage, but on the table or on the floor, they're making 50 to $200 an hour. So where do they want to be? Working. So we would compound all sorts of topical medications to treat all their regional pain syndromes, in a sense, and keep them smiling and happy on the floor. But nowadays, it's kind of cool because you can get topical diclofenic in a gel, a liquid, a patch, a cream. So if you think about it, again, off-label, there's not a place in the body you can't figure out how to get diclofenic on, which is, which is an NSAID. And that's like, to me, the ultimate of taking the battle right to where it starts. I love that. And what's the side effect profile we have with, with NSAIDs on topical? Very little it really gets absorbed centrally, so we don't really see some of the same side effects that we see officially with oral NSAIDs. So I'm, I'm a fan. How about uh, lidocaine patches? You know, the one indication we have for lidocaine patches is what? Post-traumatic neuralgia? But how often do you see patients coming in with, light, with lidocaine patches cut up to like little band-aids and they put one every place where it hurts? Well, it's a sodium channel blocker, of course. I mean, if there's a pathology there that can be affected by that, great, I'm all a fan. How about capsaicin? Well, we all learn that capsaicin pulls down substance P. Substance P is an excitatory neurotransmitter, so that helps tip, tip the scales back the other way, correct? And if you remember the inserts for the PATS that was very short-lived, they also argued that it would burn out the TRIP-V1 receptor, which would be another mechanism that that worked. The problem was, any of you try applying that patch to your patient for a therapy? Did they ever come back for a second application? No, that was tough. And that's why it disappeared from the market so quick. I, I think it had the potential for, for good, but it needed to be rolled out in a different way. It might have made a bigger difference. Yeah. Muscle relaxants. The class of muscle relaxants that we use for the field of pain basically is the class of spasmolytics. So what's really important to understand for this class is there is no class of muscle relaxants technically. All the medications that are in this class kind of come from other classes. Dr. Argoff does a great, I think it's a 10 or 20 minute Medscape video on muscle relaxants, where he talks about where all these medications come from and what they are. So basically, cyclobenzaprine is a TCA. Tizanidine is an alpha-2 agonist. Baclofen is a GABA agonist. Orphenadrine is a benzo, a benzo. I had a patient the other, well, a couple, it was probably a couple of years ago now, was basically for the muscle relaxant, they were given orphenadrine, which we all know what that is, the brand name for that, correct? with a high dose of an opioid. Would we want to give a high dose of a benzo to an opioid? And the physician said, well, he, he's not on a benzo. Well, yeah, he is. He thought he was on a muscle relaxant, but he didn't know that this is a 
benzo. So it really pays attention to know where these medications come from, which is, I think, extremely important. And then after you go through Dr. Argoff's little 10-minute session on muscle relaxants, see if you come to the same conclusion about which muscle relaxants you think might be more appropriate to treating or for using in your pain patients. Because I think that there are two that will shine out more than the others. But I can't tell you what those are, but you have to see for yourself. So basically, we're going to wind up the discussion this morning by talking about, this was an actual case study. This is a nurse that came into my office, was referred to me, with a three-year history of neck, arm, and shoulder pain that she acquired after trying to transfer a patient from a stretcher to a bed. When she called to make the appointment, she was high as a kite. When she came into the office, she was so lethargic, I thought I was going to have to call a rescue squad. No lie. So I'm looking at her medications, and these medications were all in high doses. They were prescribed by three different physicians for three different problems that she was compartmentalizing, and she did not tell each of the other physicians that she was on these meds or being treated by these other physicians. So we created a clinical nightmare. So my concern was, we can't do anything for your neck and shoulder pain. We have to get these medications under control. So I did a conference call with all three of these guys who were horrified. One of them agreed to start getting her weaned off of all of her medications. And I made a promise to the patient, which was, I'll help you with your neck and shoulder pain, but we have to get you out of this clinical situation first because this is more of a concern to me. So let's get your medications weaned down. And she's now down to two. And I promise I'll help you with your neck, arm, and shoulder pain. So three months later, you know what happened to her neck, arm, and shoulder pain? It resolved on its own. So the rule of thumb here, or the cautionary tale is, we talk about being able to modulate the nervous system, or I should say influence the nervous system, remember, because this is the asteroid theory, to help improve our pain patients. Who says we can't over-influence it so that we help maintain their pain? So sometimes all you need to do is take a step back and then see what happens. You might be pleasantly surprised. And I'll end it there because I've already known over, but the last thing I want to remind you again is the same thing I started with. Please don't forget to look for the spear because all too often I can't tell you how many times the patient has a relatively simple problem like Dr. Frichting's example with who was, the patient was clenching his teeth for 65 years causing headaches that they'll have a really simple problem and someone just forgot to look because they always assumed that somebody else had taken the time to look before them. I mean, I saw another example, which even I had a, a couple of years ago, where this patient was being treated for back pain for, I think, nine months with all sorts of therapy, oral meds, even injections. And I found it horrifying that no one really ever made the diagnosis of post neuralgia, which you can see the rest just by looking at this patient. How the guy doing the injections didn't even see this, I have no clue, except for the fact that it was, I think, lower than his injection field. So please look for the spear. So with that, again, I apologize for going over, but I only intruded into your break, so you can't shoot me. Um, I hope to see some of you again this afternoon when we do the... Oh, thank you. Appreciate that.